The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good morning. My name is Shin Kwan, and I'm subbing for Maria, who is very ill, unfortunately. It's not uh, it's a cold or a flu, but she's <laughs> definitely not feeling well enough to be here. So I understand she's giving a series of talks on <clears throat> the three characteristics of existence. And last week she talked about impermanence. Uh, so this week I will talk about dukkha, or suffering. So uh, first I just wanted to... Um, go over <clears throat> a little bit about this practice that we do here. We call it an inside practice. Um, and uh, it's meant so that we have these insights. And uh, <laughs> um, the insights we are actually referring to or have in mind are these three teachings or three insights called the three characteristics of existence. And uh, earlier on, I used to just um, think any insight I had about why I was the way I was or why I said the things I said or why other people were the way they were were the insights that they were talking about. So while those are useful and helpful for us to kind of clarify a lot of our beliefs and behaviors and, uh, and the world as it is, um, these are the ones that they're actually talking about in this practice. So... Um, Maria might have mentioned uh, the first one into the nature of uh, the changing nature of all experience or the impermanence of things. It's a very critical and crucial understanding in this practice. It kind of opens the way into understanding uh, what we mean by dukkha and not self. That's the second and third insight. So... uh, you might feel like, oh, yes, well, I understand not all things uh, last and everything changes because we are paying attention and the more we pay attention, we realize, you know, um, things change in our vision, things change in all our sense experiences, even the simple uh, aspect of breathing, we might notice the changing nature of our breath. But for some reason, uh, the Buddha noticed that uh, we as human beings kind of see things upside down. We tend to uh, take things that are impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take things that are um, suffering or unsatisfactory to be uh, pleasant or, or happy. And we tend to take things that are not self to be self. So um, we're kind of upside down. So that might not make a lot of sense to you, because they're like, no, I understand the changing nature of phenomena. But we uh, might notice it from moment to moment, but a lot of times deep inherent beliefs cause us a lot of suffering around uh, uh, how we get old, get sick, and die. There, uh, I notice a lot of suffering around the fact that we, on some level, uh, think we are permanent, <laughs> or think a relationship is permanent, or think something is permanent, even though uh, it isn't. And so it is in uh, the clinging to those things that causes a lot of suffering. So the second uh, characteristic, um, that of dukkha, first maybe we'll just go through some 
translations of dukkha because apparently it's a very difficult word, word to translate. It has many different meanings. So uh, we might just <clears throat> be accustomed to hearing it as suffering or stress or the unsatisfactory nature of things. Um, but um, we might experience it to be um, pressure in the mind, tightness in the chest, a gripping up the heart, um, some kind of unpleasant uh, physical manifestation of uh, uh, when things, when there's stress in our system. Uh, so the dukkha that's kind of referred to in as the characteristic of dukkha and is um, kind of the dukkha that's inherent in the nature of all conditioned things, of all compounded things. Anything that has a, a cause um, uh, into being will have some inherent dukkha in it. So if, um, like a mountain, this is an analogy I got from reading something that Tan Jeff wrote, a mountain is heavy uh, because it takes all the physical manifestations for it to just come into being as a mountain. Uh, uh, and that's kind of more the type of dukkha that's referred to as the characteristic of existence. Another example might be um, looking at a flower or flower gazing. Uh, it has inherent dukkha because of all the conditions that are required to bring that flower into existence and all the subtleties that it takes for a physical being to see that flower. So, and that's slightly different than the dukkha or the suffering or stress that might, we might hear a lot of teaching on here as uh, part of the noble truths, that, uh, which is the suffering that's caused by clinging or craving. Uh, so they are kind of two different things. But the reason he differentiates that and maybe... Something I'll say now is um, I kind of find it useful, this Buddhist approach to looking at suffering, uh, because it's not necessarily so that we uh, can suffer more (laughs) from it, but it's to illustrate a way out. It's to illustrate a way uh, where there's freedom from it. So... um, so how can we be free of suffering if all conditioned things uh, have inherent suffering in them? So the mountain is heavy, uh, and then there's the additional suffering of if we try and carry the mountain or lift the mountain or push the mountain, there's the suffering in that. So um, how do we get to this state which they call nirvana, which is the only place where there is no suffering, uh, this unconditioned state that doesn't rely on any uh, conditions, how do we get there when all of our experience is conditioned? Um, So you might have heard this saying, let go a little and you will know, uh, you will taste a little bit of peace, freedom. Let go a lot and you will taste a lot of peace and freedom. Let go completely and you will taste complete peace and freedom. So uh, I guess... A lot of what we teach here is trying to find ways where we can learn how to let go skillfully. Let go of the habits of clinging that are uh, illustrated or talked about in the Four Noble Truths as a way to find um, the way towards 
more complete peace and freedom. So, uh, to me that just makes a lot of um, practical sense. You know, it's true. You kind of think, well, if all things are conditioned, how do we get to an unconditioned state? And I'm not sure many people are interested in attaining nirvana or nibbana, but to me it was just um, how... How could I not want to have more peace and freedom in my life? How could I not want to have a decrease of stress? So it makes sense for me to... uh, We take a look at the things that are causing us additional stress, suffering, uh, tension in the mind, uh, tightening up the heart. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be another act of suffering. <laughs> it can be actually quite liberating to contemplate and reflect on and try and understand more clearly how we are always trying to lift, push, uh, carry that mountain around with us. So, um, so there, to me, there's a lot of... Um, hmm, there can be um, tremendous uh, lightness in this approach. So, um, in understanding the Four Noble Truths, that's the way into seeing a clear path to uh, unconditioned states or towards more complete peace and freedom, is we have to look at that which is conditioned. We have to see uh, where we can... Uh, act more skillfully where we can see more clearly so these are the the insights is where we see clearly it's as if we're um, kind of walking around not only with upside down understanding of experience or existence we're also seeing things through a very kind of cloudy lens and this practice just slightly clears that lens a little bit more each time we tend to look that way, willing to let go of patterns and habits, willing to let go of the ways in which we cling or crave. Uh, So, um, to me, very useful and practical. Uh, So, uh, I guess the Buddha very... uh, Not only were the insights, um, to me, very brilliant... um, it was very uh, clarifying that he did all this um, sitting there and recognizing there are actually um, distinct types of suffering. So that also may may make it useful for us to identify where we suffer. So so the four that he distinguishes are um, the dukkha that arises from craving or clinging to sensual pleasures or um, states. So all things that taste good, feel good, look good, sound good, um, all those things. So any craving to that. Uh, The second would be to views that we have of the world or narratives that we have about ourselves. Um, The third would be to... um, um, Precepts, clinging to precepts or practices. So that might be, um, I think what he had in mind was spiritual precepts and practices. And the fourth is um, all the ways in which we identify as selves or create identities of a self. 
So the first one I think is very clear to us, this, uh, the clinging or craving to sense pleasure. So I think we all can identify areas in our lives where that can cause us a, an additional amount of suffering uh, just to have that next drink or next pastry or next bit of food or um, all the all the ways in which we can entertain ourselves may feel temporarily good, you know, just as things may be temp- taste temporarily good. Um, uh, but if we cling to them, then it, it kind of squeezes the life <laughs> or joy out of all these things. Not only are they not that great for us, if we do 10, you know, cookies or 10 of anything, um, uh, we experience the grasping nature, or we can call it rope burn, as we try and get the squeeze, the last bit of pleasure out of any kind of experience. Um, The second one, uh, I've seen so many... um, Oh, I know, there was another example that I had around clinging. (laughs) Desire, clinging. You can... I remember seeing it so clearly... um, with my niece, who was around nine or ten at the time, and she she so wanted to have this particular doll, and we had to go uh, to a particular mall where they had this entire store devoted to these type of dolls, and uh, and not only was there a lot of excitement in her, you know, but I watched her go through this store for about an hour. And she, I could see all the places where she was clinging so much to having to make the right choice. She could only get one doll. <laughs> and I would see the expression on her face like it was just, it meant so much to her <laughs> to get the right doll. And she wanted it so much. Uh, just illustrate to me the how much, I mean, I don't think she was aware how much she was suffering, but in the moment it wasn't like this very, you know, free and easy experience of, oh, I'll finally get that doll. It was just... She was in the grips of so much desire. There was so much invested in it. And then I remember on the way home, um, you'd think she'd be so happy having this doll. And I looked at her in the back seat, and her face was all kind of furrowed, and she was very quiet. And I was like, well, what's going on back there? And she's like, oh, well, now I have to get that dress and this dress and that house and this thing and that that was endless because she had seen all the things that came with the doll and now having the doll was not quite enough. It was um, just like this entryway into all the things that she needed now because she had gotten that doll. And I was like, wow, this little bit of, you'd think, allowing her to have something she wanted created a whole de- a deal of tension, tightness, so, and not one smile the entire way home. <laughs> so um, I totally understood that I've been in the grips of that so many times. You know, I rarely get to see it clearly when I'm in the grips of it, <laughs> but I get to see it clearly when I see the expression and the energy uh, in, in my niece. So um, for me, that was a great example of that. Um, and, uh, views about the world, the second type of suffering, um, and narratives of ourselves. I've seen people get so stuck in the story of who they are, the story of um, all you know. We've had we we all come with so much. Um, I don't like to use the word damage, but hard conditions in our life. You know, suffering. There's been things that have been unfortunate and not 
perfect. So uh, it's not to say that that's not to be looked at and met um, with a lot, with with compassion, but I see where the story of that can really drag a person into a, um, a lot more suffering than's necessary. Um, I uh, tried to teach an introductory on mindfulness course to a group of of young men. I think there was fifty to sixty men who were coming out of prison um, or were doing this program so that they wouldn't have to go to prison. Um, that had problems with drugs and alcohol. And uh, in the stories that I heard, uh, as they shared, was uh, so much about um, um, identifying with the things in their lives that were so challenging and difficult. And, and how that, I could see as a weight that's preventing them from um, being free from it. So I think we might all have ideas of that. I've also seen... Um, friends of mine who have relatively very comfortable lives and good careers and enough money and wealth, but they're so upset at the conditions of the world, they carry with them a portable soapbox. And so every time um, something happens in the world that they read about, they're, they, they're like, I'm going to get on my soapbox now and talk about how awful that is. You know, so... It's not to deny that all that, that these things happen, but I can see there and watch her, you know, watch my f- one particular friend go on and on for 10 minutes about how that's not right or it should be this way. And she'll get so worked up and so uh, angry and so upset, and I can't see so much of the value or benefit in that additional storyline view of the world. Um, the one that became very clear to me, uh, this type of suffering around uh, clinging to spiritual precepts or practices, uh, very important for all of us who um, practice, I think. It's, it can just seep in because a lot of the precepts or practices not to kill, steal, lie, um, you know, make a lot of sense to me. Who wants to live in a world where uh, those aren't um, actually uh, looked at um, but when I uh, started practicing them, then I could start to feel a slight bit of self-righteousness or indignation come up when I was surrounded by people who could care less, <laughs> you know. Um, and why am I working so damn hard then if everybody else doesn't give a crap? So that can also lead to uh, additional suffering. That's not what it's meant for. It's meant as guidelines for us. It's not meant as another way to judge others or judge ourselves even when we don't uh, or can't or not quite meet all the things. Uh, They're not meant to be uh, commandments, right? But we can take them to be. We can become very rigid around our spiritual practices and precepts uh, so that it limits us and it makes it much more difficult for us to, to be free in the world and act with wisdom and compassion. Uh, another way is um, I've heard teachers describe Nibbana in such beautiful ways. Oh, freedom from suffering. Um, I want to know what that's like. I want to taste <laughs> Nibbana. And um, without even knowing it, you know, um, there I was on going on two, three-month, four-month retreats with this uh, undercurrent or strong urge for complete freedom. A little bit of freedom was no longer good enough. 
a lot of freedom was no longer good enough. I wanted complete freedom, uh, you know, and uh, all the teachings are saying, let go, let go, but it's very hard. I mean, how can you let go of wanting complete freedom? Um, so it, it just, for me, kind of seeped, I had suffered so much on retreats trying to get to complete freedom, uh, know how, and without even knowing it, uh, tightened and tensed and, you know, couldn't even see all the places I was holding just to taste that thing that I've heard uh, um, presented or spoken of so eloquently, so articulately, you know. So uh, I've gotten a lot more relaxed around it. And I hope that when people, I don't like to talk, like to talk about how beautiful the states are because it and I, I see that a lot of um, times what it does is people then want to taste it. People then want to have it. And all the ways we kind of explain it is it doesn't really work that way. It happens from letting go. It's, uh, it's really, um, to me, a very radical shift in being, you know. Uh, so that's the clinging to spiritual precepts and practices. And the last one is um, identities or any, any, any ways that we uh, kind of cling to self-identification, identities of self. And um, I don't know, once when I was a uh, grad student studying psychology, we did this exercise that comes to mind, and they would say, oh, uh, name all the ways in which you identify yourself as a mother, as a daughter, as a wife, as a teacher, as a sister, as a whatever, you know, whatever the profession is. Um, so, uh, um, and then one by one, they would say, uh, pick one, think about it, uh, body it, uh, vision, vi- visualize something that has to do with that, and then let it go and see how it is to drop it. And then pick the next one and then drop it and drop it. Um, and on some level, it was uh, uh, helpful because as I as we started to drop all the ways in which we identify with ourselves, it was very unsettling. And I noticed a lot of people start to get a little unsettled or a little nervous or a little uncomfortable because um, absent from all those ways in which we identify, then what's left? (laughs) Sorry, I'm laughing because someone just left. What's left? Um, And so Buddhism, the teachings on Buddhism points to there's actually something much more beautiful that's left. You know, I wish they had offered (laughs) the much more beautiful states before they made us do that, because what that exercise did was really uh, make us so uncomfortable, because uh, all we had were those clings to the identity identifications and identities around who we were and letting go of those one by one it was there was no ground there was very little there for us to rest in uh, and what Buddhism points to in the teachings on mindfulness is that free from that there's actually uh, there's a lot more that can be experienced um, free from those identifications so not to say that concepts of self and identi- identities of self are not useful. We have to move in the world. You know, we have to uh, go to the bank and, you know, they, you know, be who we are to access our bank accounts and all those things. It's useful. But um, pr- 
practical also is not to cling so tightly to all those identifications because they're rather flimsy if they can be let go of so easily in that simple exercise without any understanding around the nature of how we identify, um, we realized how flimsy and uh, unstable they were. So um, while they're useful, these concepts of self and identities, we don't need to put all our oranges or apples or all our um, energy into creating them, into maintaining them, into reifying them, when they're unstable in their very nature. So uh, finding that out, um, or discovering that, uh, very useful, I find, but uh, very much more useful when that's being replaced by the solid ground of awareness, the solid ground of seeing things clearly. So, I can't believe I talked for 26 minutes. Um, (laughs) But that's about um, all I think that I um, came up came up in my mind. I'm, I guess. um, Oh right. I guess this was this was important. Um, So what might be useful is the in seeing this practice um, value of seeing. Clearly, the value of uh, seeing through the suffering that comes with uh, clinging and uh, I wonder if it's made clear the dif- the differences in the two types of suffering so um, the suffering as the characteristic dukkha that's just inherent in all beings, like the heaviness of the mountain it's just heavy. Um, flower gazing, the dukkha and that is just because uh, it relies on all these kind of um, relationships to bring things into being, to allow us to see things. And for, for me, I was like, well, I don't see a whole lot of suffering in that, you know, as long as I'm not trying to carry that mountain around with me the entire time or push it or... Or, or if I'm not grasping to how beautiful that flower is way beyond the moment, <laughs> the beauty of it, then I don't see so much the problem of the inherent dukkha and things, um, at least in daily life. Um, for me, that's a much subtler understanding, um, maybe uh, a deeper understanding uh, that allows for us to... Um, move through the world without this impulse to find pleasant or pleasure in all things, without this impulse to cling to the pleasant or pleasurable in all things. If things inherently have suffering and we're willing to uh, at least posit that or take that on temporarily uh, in our investigations or explorations, then maybe... uh, it has some quality uh, to allow us to release that clinging. So to me, it's valuable in that. Uh, um, The Buddha then offered the Four Noble Truths as a way in to looking at, well, where is it then practical for us to look at where there is this additional clinging, where we tend to suffer more in our daily lives, the grasping to these four types of suffering that I just... um, 
described. So to me, that's valuable. It's a good medicine uh, to me, at least. Uh, even if I didn't see, I was like, well, so what if a mountain's heavy? What's the suffering in that? Where is there suffering in that, you know? Um, but, um, you know, you can hear this often. There are um, suffering in all conditioned things. There are some level of dukkha in all conditioned things. And only in the unconditioned things, like nirvana or nibbana, is there freedom from suffering. So now I'm not so uh, intent on having that complete freedom from suffering at every moment of every day, but it makes sense to me to move towards that. The, uh, the, it made sense for me to, well, can that be true? Is that possible? Maybe, maybe not, but it was worth it for me. The four types of suffering made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I could see where there was tons of clinging to all those. Um, but it was worth, well, let's see, you know. And it's true, the, for me, the experience of sitting those kind of endless two, three, four-month retreats, um, uh, it's inevitable that uh, letting go happens. You, uh, I found that um, there's a point of self-torture <laughs> or torment <laughs> that just, <laughs> uh, um, I don't know, helps um, allow some level of uh, letting go to happen. You know, not everybody has to go through uh, uh, so much clinging or grasping for letting go to happen. Uh, But for me, that was helpful to see how much suffering there was. So, um, I guess, yeah, I hope I didn't, I hope this wasn't too much of a downer this <laughs> dukkha can, discussions on dukkha can be can be downers, uh, but for me it's a very useful way of uh, reflecting on ways, reflecting on the useful ways that we can kind of maybe let go a little bit more, or see more clearly into uh, those ways, those four types of suffering that are um, in our lives. So I think. Um, Andrea usually just opens it up now for discussion or Q&A, so um, any protests, <laughs> any questions, any comments? Um, I've, I've um, heard about dukkha before, but I've never heard of the two different kinds you talked about, so that was useful. But the other thing that struck me as you were talking, and I don't exactly know why or what it connected to in your, in your talk, is that I have um, generally thought about suffering as something I am going to let, if I let go of it, I'm going to let go of it all at once. You know, <laughs> I'm going to clean it out and it's all going to be fine for there, from then on. And it's... But that's, of course, not in the moment. Uh, so I now will be thinking, considering um, letting go of clinging and letting go of suffering moment to moment rather than all at once. Oh, wonderful. Um, if it happens all at once, you can let us know. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Yes. Um, 
So something just came to mind around that is uh, a lot of us do go on these long retreats because we're uh, compelled to at least investigate these uh, deeper insights at some level. And something does happen, I would have to say, when there's the um, the dis- dispelling of the myth of uh, that uh, that there's pleasant in things that aren't pleasant. There's something very liberating about that. So it's not like we're walking around thinking, oh, all the mountains are heavy. Oh, dear Lord, <laughs> there's so much suffering in that. It's that we no longer have to seek out the pleasant in that, that somehow... Uh, so this is what I would say, the bigger uh, freedom from suffering. Does that make sense? Can you wait for the mic so that it gets recorded? Yes, thank you. I don't think I'm getting uh, the full impact, meaning, whatever, of the mountain analogy. Oh, right. So, so I think Tan Jeff does a much better job. I got, I, I researched a little bit of this on access to insight. So, it's something that I've heard many times teachers say that there's a, a dukkha in all conditioned things, and that only in the unconditioned is, is there freedom from dukkha, and that they would say is nibbana or nirvana. So, uh, like looking at the flower was a clearer example to me. Uh, that it takes a lot of causes and conditions for that flower to come into being. The sun, the earth, the seed, the, uh, um, the water. Uh, so it has to come into being, number one. And then there's all this kind of delicate balance for us as a person to see it, right? So inherent in that, that's, that's the causes, all the conditions that are there for that to happen, they say there's some there's stress. So stress might be a wet, better word because it is on a subtler level. There's stress for that all these things to come into being. It takes energy. It takes all these things uh, for in the in the physical body. Um, and the more common type of suffering you've heard of is there's no uh, problem with gazing at that beautiful flower. In that moment when we see a beautiful flower, um, it can be quite lovely. So it's not to say there's no pleasant sensations. But the suffering we hear more commonly of is that we want to somehow to make that last, that pleasant sensation or that moment of seeing that beautiful flower last. We take a picture of it, we write a poem about it, we text our friends about it in order to kind of re-keep reliving, reliving, reliving. So that's kind of one example. It also takes stress for us to feed ourselves, right? Just to be a being takes stress, takes energy. And uh, this becomes sometimes clearer when we sit, sit retreat and um, we're so used to being settled. It's like, oh, I have to eat. <laughs> oh, I have, to get, I have to take a shower. I have to wash my hair. You know, it's like this, all the energy it takes to, to care to just, you know, move through the day becomes much more palpable because it's all the things that we are usually doing and rushing are gone and settled, right? The conditions for the retreat allow us to see much more these subtler stresses of just being. Does that make a little bit more sense? Yeah. Uh, 
I, I certainly appreciate always the notion of uh, interdependent being and how all the conditions that takes to have anything exist. I guess I can't, I don't quite get the stress out of that. Right. I, I see when, and of course when it comes to eating, I never regard that as a uh, interruption of anything. <laughs> okay. Um, but that's my proclivity. Um, but the interdependent being, you're talking about sort of an inherent stress in that process. What's stressed? Um, yes. Because con 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 let's see let's say contrasted with this state that's free from conditions from any kind of stress energy there's no need to come into being it becomes very clear does that I, I know it's very difficult so I had to say I just had to pause it that it's possible. Okay, let's see if that's what they say. Is you know the reason I went to you know sit, let's invest. Let's see, is there you know? So there, according to this way of practice, this type of insight practice, there are levels of insight, stages of insight, right? So um, the, after the insight into the impermanent nature of things, right? Uh, this insight into this level of suffering can become very apparent, right? So it kind of moves us through where... um, I can just give one example. Um, I could feel, experience the suffering component even in compassion. Say more. Even there was a bit that, that held on to compassion for its depth, for its meaning, for its you know, heart-opening capacity. It wasn't completely free to be just compassion. And I would never pick up on a subtlety like that, you know, uh, unless I was in these kind of conditions that are made, uh, you know, available on retreat. Uh, So it kind of dispelled this myth of seeing compassion as, oh, it's so, you know, it is, it's beautiful. It's necessary, rather move with compassion than pity, than indifference, than, you know, for sure. But I no longer had to see it as um, necessarily so pure. As what? So pure. Didn't have to be. It still had a value. It still had a, But the fact of me having it and me owning it and me, you know, all those, that, that part, still there was, and that's a felt experience, I can say, of being. Well, I think you're hitting on, uh, or it brings to mind anyway, my difficulty is I think I get the more gross examples of dukkha, but I am not that attuned to the more, to the more um, subtle ones. And uh, thank you. Um, and that has to do with like things like the interdependence and seeing the suffering in that don't quite see it because I've sort of got everything reified and I, I don't understand how that's suffering. But that's because I don't have the insight to support that view. 
So. Right. And you can't force. I tried so hard to force the inside, yeah. so it doesn't work. <laughs> so thank you. We could go around in circles all day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyone else? Okay. So, I mean, this is just a presentation of, I'm not sure I do a very complete job or a thorough job, <laughs> but it's, if it's interesting to you, at least I found it important to distinguish between the two. So for most of us, uh, we don't even are interested in seeing this, those subtler things. Not important. We have such busy lives. And are, can I just work on one of the four and <laughs> reduce one of the four a bit to make my, you know to have some freedom, some liberation? Uh, so you know, some of us are a little bit. I don't know if we want to go. I want to taste it all. You know, <laughs> there's there's a bit of grasping in that. So um, it happens uh, when you know the conditions are ripe. You know, so it's just. Uh, uh, sometimes we can just point our our vision into you know contemplating oh is the, is this uh, am I taking what's pleasant and really there's some level of suffering in it just to contemplate it doesn't we don't have to you know expect the huge insight around it but it's for me it's worthwhile so yes can you wait for the mic. <laughs> I actually like doing that part. I get to move. <laughs> so when you're thinking about that level of suffering that's sort of the deep, not the four, but the deeper ones about interconnectedness, and it's inherent that it exists, and, there, and that's just the way, it, there's not anything we can do about that because we have to eat and plants need rain and sun, then is, how does one let go of what totally, what is inherently there? I can see, okay, well, you know, I want your, like in the case of your niece, she really wanted that doll, and then she wanted the other things. And when we recognize that, then we can begin to let go of that, and that craving isn't there anymore. But the plant needs water, and we need food, so you can't really let go of it. Um, I'm not really sure what I'm asking. Yeah. That's oh kind of no, that's a great line of questioning because it's the same thing that came to in this in this article that I read. Well, how do we reach this unconditioned state if all we're living is a conditioned state? How do we get there? You know. So um, I'm not a this you know this monk that's been sitting in a cave for for forty years or something, but. Um, what happens is, I think we notice is, as we uh, recognize those areas where we're constantly feeding our mind with stories, um, our, you know, uh, reifying our identification with ourself, and as that gets tighter and tighter, we can we sometimes feel how smaller and smaller our experience becomes, or less, satis- you know, it's in the grips of some concept, or it's the grips of some desire or clinging. And so even releasing a little bit of that opens up a lot more freedom. And so he just took that a little further. Well, what happens if we let go even more? What happens if we can let go completely of those identifications? What happens if we can let go completely? We will eat for the need of nourishment, but we don't need to eat for the sake of how delicious that's going to be <laughs> or how unsatisfying that, you know, so there are stages so um, um, 
I can only speak for the fact that the levels become subtler on retreat. The amount of freedom becomes deeper, becomes much more satisfying than anything I, I could experience in the conditioned world, in a much more highly conditioned world, right? So for me, it's just very liberating to know that it's possible uh, for all of us uh, to experience that, or it's in the ground of our being, the capacity of the mind and a heart. Uh, I think sometimes it wants to move in that direction, but we're conditioned to move in this direction just to survive in the world, you know. So this is a radical shift. The conditions of the world are telling us to do this, but there's something that's saying, well, what if I try this and taste that? Does that make sense? So I know some monks and practitioners have experienced complete enlightenment. I think it's possible. And they move through the world in a very different way. And I even think when you sit in the room with a very experienced teacher, their level of grasping, you can feel is less. Their level of settledness, peace, satisfaction with things as they are, whether uh, you're in the middle of a war zone or in the middle of this room, can be uh, very uh, stabilizing. Does, Does that make sense? Okay. Does anyone else have any other things? Okay. Well, so I hope that was uh, somewhat useful. I always say you, you don't have to believe anything I say. I might change my mind or read something else and say, oh, I was completely wrong. But it really is just food for thought to actually take. Uh, if you're interested in then there's so much, you know, great um, writings available now to to explore things further. So so I'm happy to end now. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>